Welcome to 28ish. We're a podcast dedicated to making space for menstrual cycles, cyclical living, divine feminine power, and everything in between. We get into the details of periods, hormones, cycle tracking, feminine business prowess, and every other aspect of being a bleeding person. I'm your host, Carrie McKinnon. I'm a menstruality mentor and the CEM, Chief Executive Menstruator at 28ish. Be sure to check us out at 28ish.com to see our cycle tracking art and feel free to leave us a comment letting us know what cycle day you're on. Thanks for listening and remember, your cycle is more than your period. Hello, Dr. Sweldo. Welcome. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'm excited to be here today. I'm really excited to have you here, to have someone with your level of expertise to um, speak about what you do and talk to the audience and explain to us a few things (laughs) that I'm sure are going to come up in this conversation. Um, I'm wondering just, yeah, quickly, uh, what do you do? (laughs) <laughs> what do I do? So as my, as my title suggests, I am a doctor. Um, so when doctors finish medical school, they then have to do a training, additional training in their specialty. And so after medical school, I did four years of OBGYN, which is stands for obstetrics and gynecology. And so we are trained basically in the full spectrum of everything to do with women's health. Um, after you finish your residency, some people will go into different tracks. Some people will do gynecology only. Some people will work on the labor floor only. Some people will stay as a general OBGYN and cover the full scope of things. And then some of us will do additional training. So it's called a fellowship or a subspecialty um, in different aspects of women's health. And so after my residency, I did three more years um, at the University of Connecticut in infertility. And I umbrella under infertility, but the technical term is REI, um, reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So it's not only the infertility piece, but everything related to women's hormones. Um, So we are really sort of hormone slash fertility specialists. And to do that, you have to also have board certification. So I'm actually double board certified. So I'm board certified in OBGYN and I'm board certified in REI. So in a short, not so short story, that's what I do. <laughs> I love that. And that translates, I think, that you went to school for a very long time. Yes. Yes, <laughs> ma'am. You got that right. You got that right. And went to school in two different places, didn't you? Well, a few different yeah. places, if you count different places in the U.S., but you've been to school in different countries. Yes. So my story is a little bit different than the average person. Um, My parents and all of my extended family, so cousins, aunts, uncles, everyone, um, they are from Argentina, a Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful country. And when I was 15, my parents decided that they wanted to move back. Um, And so I actually finished high school there and then decided to stay for medical school there. Um, So I did my medical school training in South America. And then I took all the sort of equivalency exams and all the things that you have to do, um, and then came back to California for my OBGYN residency. 
Um, and that was familiar because I came back to my hometown of Fresno. Mm -hmm. um, and then I moved to the Northeast for my fellowship. So I did three years in Connecticut um, and they were my top choice. Uh, and I had amazing, amazing training. Although I feel like to live in the Northeast, you have to kind of be born and raised there. <laughs> because the of winters weather are, are pretty tough. Yeah. 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 Um, and then once I finished my fellowship, I decided to take a job in Florida. So I actually joined a big practice in Miami. Um, okay. I was in Miami for three years and then now the last four and a half, I've been back in California. So I really have lived in several different places and I think it's given me kind of great perspective, um, you know, into my patient population. I think it's made me a better doctor, to be honest, all those yeah. different experiences. Well, yeah, that's interesting that you bring up patient population kind of immediately there, because that's kind of what I was thinking, like, are there like culture difference amongst the patients, actually, in terms of like, I don't know, you can tell us like in terms of what, but I would imagine in terms of like, what they're concerned about, what they're asking you sure. about, or yeah, can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, um, even so, I think excuse me, I think, you know, internationally, it is um, well understood that there's going to be cultural differences. I think what's maybe less obvious is that from California to Florida to the Northeast, there also are actually significant differences. Um, it's, you know, the, the ethnicity base, the education base, um, income and access base. So for example, Connecticut is what we call a mandate state where treatment coverage is required by insurances um, by mm. the state government. And so a lot, a lot, a lot of patients have fertility treatment coverage versus in California and Florida, they do not. Um, also, you know, being in a in a hub like Miami, which is very, very Latin population based, and I use Latin generally because it's Central America and South America, um, versus you know Central California where where I am practicing now. So there's definitely um, a lot of differences in how you counsel and also what the concerns are, um, mm -hmm. and you know the different diseases or different exposures, etc. I think um, it's also worth noting that. Yeah. Very interesting. You said that there's differences in how you counsel. Is that like a communication based difference? Like, I, I mean, like, yeah, I, so I, I struggle with talking differently to different people, like, okay, between <laughs> like, so I'm in Atlanta. So between Southerners and like Northerners, there's like communication sure. gaps, right? So sure, sure. Sure, definitely. So I think when you talk about, I mean, in terms of like education and information, obviously everyone is going to get the same spiel, so to speak. Um, but when you talk about, let's say treatment options. So in my specialty, mm. you know, we, we talk a lot of times about egg donation or sperm donation or surrogacy. Um, and depending on, you know, who the audience is, they may be more, oh, I'm so sorry about that. It's okay. Busy doctor getting a phone call. Sorry, changing that right now. Um, so, so depending on who the audience is, is really, you know, they're going to be more or less open to different options. Also, for example, surrogacy, um, depending on the state, there's different regulations in terms of who can access it and whatnot. So there is a little bit of um, tweaking and adjusting that happens uh, depending on where you practice. Interesting. Yeah. So, and it sounds kind of like access and trends within the fertility world 
are impacted by location. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting and not surprising at all. Um, speaking of location, I think it's really quite interesting just you being like a, I don't know if we call this a second culture kid. It's like my kids, they were <laughs> born in another country and lived there until they were like 10 and then came here to the States. And then, so like they, they have these dual cultures always kind mm -hmm. of that are in their heads in terms of what they're identifying as what's mm -hmm. very interesting to me is that you've had like a dual culture, dual culture exposure to like medical practices, if you will, between like mm -hmm. Argentina and the US. And even in the US, as we just said, there's a lot of variation in terms mm -hmm. of like what's happening in the medical realm and patient care. Um, so yeah, can you talk, can you explain to us a little bit of like maybe what's going on in Argentina, you know, from your perspective? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about there. So number one, <laughs> I definitely can identify with your kiddos, um, because it was a really interesting upbringing where you always you were always a little bit different. So, you know, here we had a very, very strong Argentine influence. And then there, you know, we were considered the American kids. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting way to, to be brought up. We were very fortunate. We got to travel a lot with our parents. And so, um, you know, I always like the term global citizen and mm -hmm. definitely feel very strong ties to both the U.S. and Argentina, but like to consider myself and, and hopefully, you know, my children will be global citizens as well. Um, as far as the way medicine is practiced, it's definitely very different. Some of the sort of, you know, big um, glaring differences. So one, for example, is that a few years ago, Argentina passed a national law requiring that IVF be covered. And um, we are behind in that way. So patients wow. have a lot more access now um, compared to what they did prior to that law being passed. Um, here in the U.S., as I mentioned earlier, you know, insurers are governed by each state. So there's no federal mandate. It's, it's state mandated. And depending on the state is the different regulations. Um, the second thing that's sort of a big obvious difference is when it comes to egg donation. Egg donation, um, while very common in the United States, well, I should say um, both egg donation and sperm donation. I should actually say both. Um, there are some big cultural differences in terms of the acceptance and the willingness to talk about it. So in Argentina, mm -hmm. it's still very much not taboo, but it's it's um, it's not something that's openly discussed. It's kept very private within the couple or within the immediate family. Um, a lot of times the children are not informed. Um, here, that is still the case sometimes, but there is much more of a philosophy towards um, you know, openly discussing that. In the reproductive psychology literature, they talk about you know, keeping it a secret is associated with sort of negative connotations. And particularly now with all the genetic tests that are, you know, available to consumers over the counter, um, you don't want your child like finding out about this as a, you know, a random coincidence or situation once they're older. 
Yeah. Um, so I think that those are probably, and then the third striking difference is that gestational surrogacy um, is up until now considered illegal in the country of Argentina. Um, it, that The tide is starting to change. There are a lot of precedent now, I would say in the last two to three years, showing that it's becoming more accepted, um, but mm. it's certainly not, there's no law um, regulating surrogacy um, at this point in that country. So there's definitely some striking differences um, with the way we practice fertility here in the United States. Wow. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. When you talk about, um, you know, the kind of psychological side of or like cultural acceptance of certain parts of a fertility journey, um, I did see somewhere that you had been speaking about integrative psych psychiatry is that heading in in that kind of direction or can you speak about like integrative psychiatry and its role in, in the yeah. fertility journey yeah absolutely um so i want i'm gonna actually backtrack a little bit and okay. i'm gonna talk about integrative medicine in general because i think that is a very new term even for a lot of doctors even mm -hmm. for myself Okay. Um, that's a term I became familiar with really this year, although it's been around a lot longer. Um, so integrative medicine is essentially the incorporation of Eastern practices, or, or I should say non-Western medicine practices. Mm -hmm. So think, and when you think of that, you think of things like uh, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, yes. guided imagery, acupuncture, um, you know, Reiki, um, massage. I mean, there's so many different things that, that can be encompassed under that yeah. integrative medicine, nutrition, uh, supplements, herbs, etc. So all of those are considered encompassed under that big umbrella term of integrative medicine. I think what's difficult about integrative medicine is because it's not regulated, it's, you really want to make sure that if you are doing those, that you're working with someone who's knowledgeable, who's experienced, um, who's had extensive training or extensive years of exposure. So, you know, I think it's a really exciting time in medicine because we're really trying to marry East and West. Um, you know, traditional conservative medicine is very disease oriented. We're very sort of, okay, you have this ailment, take this pill for it or this yeah. drug or this you know, what symptoms. Um, yeah. Right. Versus I think when you incorporate these integrative practices, you're really looking at the whole person and trying to identify the underlying cause or, and, and it's not about replacing one with the other. There's really, mm -hmm. and that's why I love the term integration. It's really about giving the patient all the resources to give them the best outcome possible. So both traditional sort of conservative medicine, as we grew up with here in the States and then married with those integrative practices. So when you talk that. about integrative psychiatry specifically, that's just sort of basically the, the traditional psychiatry. So again, you know, that would include working with a therapist, with mm -hmm. a psychiatrist using medications as indicated, et cetera, but also incorporating these other treatments or these other practices to try and optimize or to try and maximize the benefit from, from everything else that you're doing with the therapy and the medications. Very, very interesting. I'm, I'm kind of getting very excited to hear a doctor talking about this, this like integrative medicine thing, because yeah, th that's happening. I know like in the NHS, they do this social prescribing. I don't know if you're familiar I did with not, that. I wasn't aware. No. 
so yeah, the so social, social prescribing. Well, from from my understanding of it, it's like if a doctor's uh, treat, you know, has a patient that's going to them and like they're maybe pre-diabetes, not instead of maybe in addition to, you know, the kind of a medication treatment or a pharmaceutical treatment, the option of, hey, here's your local walking group information, you know, like getting them out into the community. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like this thing between the NHS and like local council government, right? So that the practitioners for these like integrate, these different healing modalities, like you were talking mm -hmm. about are registered with those councils. And then doctors can kind of prescribe air quotes that in addition right. to, or in place of going a more pharmaceutical route. Yeah. And I think that in the U.S., this is definitely a newer concept. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that all of us recognize the need for more. Right. And also yeah. the need for um, if we can provide these resources to patients and if we can, you know, potentially see. And so I, and I'll bring I'll tie this back into, you know, my my specialty specifically. Um, we know we, it's been well documented that patient burnout and the emotional and physical toll that fertility treatments take is typically why patients stop treatment. Mm -hmm. And so if we can equip them with tools um, to, to basically, you know, allow them to process and navigate the journey a little bit easier, those patients are more likely to adhere to treatment. And then ultimately, because of that, they're more likely to be successful. So it's definitely something that I feel very strongly about. Um, I always talk about the three arms of treatment. We talk about, you know, the medical treatment, the one they'll be doing in the fertility clinic. We talk about supplements, sort of herbs, et cetera. And then we talk about lifestyle. And in mm -hmm. lifestyle, we talk about things like nutrition, exercise, sleep, which is a big one, um, and then stress management. So uh, yeah, I, th that's something that um, is, you know, I think it's going to become more and more popular, my hope, uh, more and more well-known here in the U.S. And we will begin to incorporate it more and more. I really love that. <laughs> yeah. Really, really love that. Um, and that helps to like me to understand something that I saw on your Instagram where you were kind of like going from an operating room to talking about medicine and herbs. And I was like, what? Like, she's so cool. <laughs> but like that, you just explained like why, like that is actually yeah. an incorporated part of your practice. Yeah, I definitely think, um, you know, and again, it's not about replacing, right? It's not about alternative. It's really about integrating. It's really about complementing. It's really about in addition to and versus instead of. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I do I do feel strong. And I will say that it has taken my own education and informing myself and, you know, yeah. speaking with people who are well-versed in their integrative practice to really not convince me, but to really open my eyes. I think that's a better way to say it, to really open yeah. my eyes to the possible benefits that those practices may have for my patients. I love that. And do you yourself meditate and 
meditate? So I, I, I always tell people I'm like a baby meditator. Like I, okay. I just like dip my toe in the meditation practice, but I do. And you know, what's so interesting and, and I, you know, I'm happy to provide the resources to your audience afterwards, but the, the expert that I spoke with about meditation and mindfulness, you know, it's kind of like exercise where most of us have this sort of all or none concept where, you know, if you don't go to the gym and go mm-hmm. all out for an hour, then it's not considered exercise, right. Versus just going, walking around the neighborhood for 30 minutes or whatnot. So she said, you know, for most people, they feel like unless they're doing this hardcore, like two hour meditation that it doesn't count. She's like, really most of her clients you know, they'll do it like at a pickup or a drop-off or when they get to work, they'll leave, you know, five minutes early, sit in their car for five minutes and just do a quick guided meditation before they start their day. Um, And so I love that. I love that she makes it sort of consistent and easy and, um, you know, something that is realistic to incorporate into your daily habits without becoming this whole project that you have to do. Heck yeah. Um, Dan Harris of 10% happier. I don't know if you've ever read that book or no, and it's an app to a free app. Um, he's all about that. (laughs) And he was like a hardcore, like famous news anchor that had a complete breakdown on air and then yeah, discovered meditation (laughs) and (laughs) that, you know, and he's gone like way off the deep end with meditation as well. Like the hardcore meditation, but like his whole thing is like, anytime you can, if you're in the back of an Uber, you know, like pop in your headphones and do it then like really that just that even that little 10% happier bit is going to like add up and have real benefits. So Yeah. And so kind of what you're talking about is a lot of people will start out as crisis meditators, right? So like Mm. they have this acute event that happens um, or this acute X, whatever, and then they sort of discover it out of necessity. And then if they're able to, because the key here is consistency, right? Like with anything, like with your eating habits, like with your exercise habits, with your sleep habits, this is the same. Consistency is key. So, you know, if you're able to incorporate it into your daily habits, I, you know, it's the, the benefits are actually um, well-studied. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. And like you said, this concept of like, crisis what do you say crisis starters crisis crisis meditators yeah that's a real thing isn't it i i was talking to my sister just yesterday and we were talking about how like with the use of antidepressants like you might have this kind of like baseline okay right Mm -hmm. like you can you can use these as a tool to make Mm -hmm. someone um kind of okay stabilized that's the word i'm looking for um Uh and However, like if you were to do that with these other things that sometimes we start in crises times to like make ourselves okay, that it's that much more powerful as an effect, as opposed to getting on the medication and stopping all of those things because you don't need them as much, right? Air quotes. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal relationship with your menstrual cycle and your hormonal cycle? Yeah. Yeah. So I started my periods, you know, average, I think I was like 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Um, and had them every month. Um, and I would say maybe like two, two to three years in, um, they began to get progressively more painful. 
And I wasn't missing school or anything like that, but definitely, you know, kind of curled up and taking ibuprofen or Motrin or, you know, whatever the, um, you know, medication was at that time. And interestingly, so my background, for those that don't know, my uh, dad is also a REI or fertility specialist. And so his concern was something called endometriosis. So I mm-hmm. was actually placed on birth control pills at a young age, not for contraception, but for the painful periods. Mm-hmm. And within you know a cycle or two, a pack or two of the pills, my periods got significantly better. Um, and I was essentially on birth control for probably close to 15 years or longer. I honestly don't remember. Um, and I was always well controlled and I, you know, I had noticed improvement in my acne, um, and just, you know, I always did well with them, never had any issues and funny, funny story. Well, funny, not funny at the time, but funny story now is Mm -hmm. I was engaged, um, to my now husband and we were planning our wedding And I was going to be, so this, you know, this is like September, fall, fall of, uh, fall of 18. Mm -hmm. And I said, Hey, you know, we're getting married in March. I'm going to be 35 advanced maternal age. You know, this, you know, what I do every day, what I see every day. So I've been on the pill this long. Why don't I get off the pill? Um, you know, at least let my body kind of reset. I don't know why I thought this because I'm a, I'm a fertility specialist, but you know, the woman in me was like, let me get off the pill. Let me take a few months to kind of reset. And then after the wedding, we'll start trying more seriously. And then if we're not pregnant by the summer, then we'll do all the testing and do all that. And I already had this plan and, you know, we were going to do IVF and do all the things. And I came off of birth control and never got a period because I got pregnant that first month. <laughs> oh my so gosh. I was- that's wild. <laughs> so I was actually pregnant for our wedding um, in March. And wow. then we ended up having our son, Luca, yeah, in July of that year. So um, what I always tell people when it comes to birth control pills is, mm-hmm. you know, they've been around for a long, long time now. Yeah. And we had really good long-term data. And we know that when a patient comes off of birth control pills, they are going to return immediately to their baseline fertility. So if they are baseline fertile, pregnancy is possible even within the first month of conception as, as Mm. it happened to me. Um, However, if their baseline fertility is abnormal, so let's say you have irregular cycles or you have, you know, something going on in your reproductive organs, um, that is going to come back coming off of the pill. So, you know, it's not that it's not that because of the pill you have infertility or because of the pill you have irregular cycles. No, it's, it's a return to whatever your baseline was. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I, I went off on that tangent, no, about the birth good. Control, but I, I think it's important to, to do sort of this myth busting when it comes to the birth control pill, because there is so much out there. That's just, it's not, not accurate. Well, there's a lot of pushback about the birth control pill right now. Um, yeah. And, and the practice of prescribing it to young women that then stay on yeah. it for years and years. I, my understanding of that pushback is that it's like using the birth control pill in place of hormone balancing um, modalities, if you will, right? Like going into other ways to balance your hormones as opposed to just put them on the pill. It's a painful period keep them on this like outside, you know, um, medicine for years and years. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think that's actually also a myth, right? Okay. Because hormone balancing modalities, um, you know, outside of talking about these integrative practices that you and I were alluding to, um, there's really not a whole lot that we can do in traditional medicine. So I think where yeah. the gap in communication between the medical provider and the patient, I think where the gap happens is that the patient doesn't understand why they're being put on the pill. Mm. And because they don't understand why they question it. So what I always tell patients is it's really important to understand if you have questions, ask, if you don't understand, ask. And so if the patient is being put on the pill for irregular cycles, the follow-up question is, okay, well, why does the patient have irregular cycles? Does she Mm. have PCOS? Does she have premature menopause? Does she have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what was the evaluation that was done and why is the birth control pill being prescribed? So I think if both the physician and the patient have a clear understanding as to why the pill is being used, then I think a lot of this uh, resistance wouldn't be present because I think a lot of it stems from that. Now there are definitely lifestyle things that can improve right? So optimal weight, making sure that you are, you know, balanced from a nutrition, exercise, sleep standpoint. I keep talking about sleep because it really is one of the pillars of health. We know that there's so much healing and regeneration and hormone balancing that happens during those sleep cycles. So I do Mm -hmm. always talk about that. Um, But I, I don't know of any other sort of hormone balancing modality outside of sort of integrative practices that would be additive to a hormone pill like the birth control pill. Okay. Interesting perspective. Um, some, something that's come up on this podcast quite a bit in the interviews that I've been doing is, uh, the seed cycling to balance hormones. Talk to me about that. Okay. (laughs) Definitely. I just had an hour long conversation about it yesterday. Um, (laughs) so seed cycling using certain seeds, that will have an effect on where you're at in your hormonal cycle on either side of the bleed and ovulation, right? So beautiful. So yeah. I definitely would incorporate that as an mm-hmm. integrative practice. And that mm-hmm. would fall under the category of supplements or herbs or nutrition, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So that would fall under that umbrella. But again, just like all of these practices, please, please, please make sure you are working with someone who is well-versed, who is knowledgeable, who knows what they're doing. Um, Because in my field, unfortunately, what I see a lot of times is a a practitioner who is well-intentioned, but who is not who is maybe not knowledgeable and understanding the science or the biology well enough. And so then the patient comes to me and, you know, their hormones are not where they're supposed to be, or the balance is not what it's, you know, they're not doing what they think that they're doing. So um, really, really important to be working with somebody who's educated, who's knowledgeable um, in, in, in that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I think one of the things going back to, um, and I didn't expect us to have this conversation, but I'm really (laughs) glad that we are. I think it's the really important one that needs to be had more openly. Yeah. From my perspective, one of the whole things, this resistance to birth control um, and that uh, the practice of, right? So I'm an adolescent, I have painful periods, I've come to see my doctor. 
my doctor then puts me on birth control, which I stay on for the next 10 or 15 years until I'm, you know, ready to, to start thinking about having children and then have read a book that's really freaked me out about the effect of birth control on my body. You know, like there's a, there is a, a lot of that. Um, and I think that at the heart of it, I would say my issue with the practice of the prescribing birth control is skipping over the cycle awareness part for the patient, right? Like not getting into, okay, your periods are painful, but you are a person that bleeds. <laughs> you have a hormonal cycle that's going to have you showing up, if you will, differently in every part of that cycle with different properties, right? Like, so this is what I always talk about returning to our cyclical nature or honoring that. And if I, if I want to go way far out, that's why I'm always like, you know, cycle awareness, menstrual cycle awareness is fighting the patriarchy, right? So we're claiming <laughs> you're laughing <laughs> for people that can't No, but, but I, but the thing is, I totally agree with you. So yeah. again, I think it comes back to this gap in communication and the yeah. patient not having a clear understanding. So I think that if we can sort of meet in the middle, I think that there's better communication and understanding, then I absolutely think that there would be less resistance. And, and I agree with you in terms of like cycle awareness. And, and I would even take that a step further. And I would say, you know, reproductive planning. So this is something mm -hmm. I talk a lot about is, okay, yes, you know, I, I happen to be a big fan of, of birth control and that's fine. You know, we can agree to disagree there. Uh, but, but my point is, you don't want to wake up at 34, 35 and be like, oh, now it's time for me to start thinking about, do I want to have a family or not? Do I want to have kids or not? How many right. kids do I think I want? Like, this is something that we should be talking about a lot sooner because mm -hmm. we have options, right? We know that, re that ovarian aging is a real thing. Reproductive aging is a real thing. And so for a lot of women, the first time that they're really thinking about that is after age 30, when ideally we would like them to at least have an awareness. I'm not saying you have to be 25 and, and like want to be a mom by, by no means am I saying sure. that, Yeah. <laughs> but I am saying like, that's something you maybe want to at least have an awareness about, know that there is reproductive aging, know that the cycles eventually will go away as that yeah. ovarian curve is depleted. Yeah. No, that, and that's a very interesting perspective. And, you know, also another thing to jump into is like, as a society kind of where we're at as women has, has we've evolved into this place where we're having children later and later or even ready to think about having children later and later yep. Yep. um and then so for fertility specialists like yourself i'm sure you're thinking about this a lot right like what that means yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and so you know ACOG, which is the American College of OBGYNs, does state as a guideline that at every annual visit, and hopefully every woman of reproductive age is seeing an OBGYN once a year. Um, and, you know, at that visit, you know, the question is, you know, are you actively trying to get pregnant? And if the mm -hmm. answer is no, then it's like, okay, well, what contraception are you using? Um, and if the answer is yes, then okay, how long have you been trying, you know, and kind of go a little bit deeper to see if you need to see a specialist, but it really is something that hopefully is being talked about more and more at that annual visit. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you said the question is, are you trying to get pregnant, but maybe a question could be, 
do you think <laughs> you would want to get pregnant at yeah. any time in ah. the next five to 10 years? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Because yeah. we have options now that we didn't have, you, you know, 10 years ago, like egg freezing, like sperm freezing. Um, you know, there's so many things we can, you know, and, and it's not that you have to do those techniques, but at least you have the option of informed consent. Because what happens in my office a lot is, you know, patients tell me, I wish I would have known. I wish someone would have told me. I wish I would have checked, you know, my egg reserve sooner, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And so if we are able to, to catch those people and make them aware, you know, five, 10 years prior, then at least they can potentially plan for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously you are a fertility specialist. You've dedicated your entire uh, life's work so far to this, it seems. However, I do need to ask about the menopause train that has left the yeah. station, right? And it's like, yeah. and I'm wondering, you know, because you're also a, as in part of your training, you're, you're a hormonal expert. Is this something, yeah. is this a way that you work with women? Um, yeah. And I have um, several colleagues who are menopause specialists. So typically yeah. if a patient comes to me, I'm happy to kind of, you know, tee them up, get them started and then refer them over to someone to do the more long-term management. But this is definitely within my scope. And again, I think this is another area of women's health that's not talked about enough. It's such mm -hmm. an important transitional period and it can last a long time. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure that women are not just surviving, but that they're thriving during those years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's an exciting time for the menopause movement. I don't know from like inside the medical profession for yourself, if you see that same thing, but it's like suddenly everywhere. And when I say yeah. suddenly, I'd say within the past three years, two years, it's yeah, I everywhere <laughs> when it's everywhere though, there does come, you know, misinformation as well mm -hmm. that's going around. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that a lot of the fight, um, is in the HRT and BHRT, right. The hormonal replacement. That, yeah, yeah. And that's going to continue to be the case, at least yeah. in the short term for the next three to five years. Um, okay. and that comes in large part from the women's health initiative study that was published. Um, gosh, now it's been a while. Cause I was a resident when, when we were talking about this, but, um, the idea is that in the women, in the WHI, the, they basically took all comers, and so they started them on HRT, whether they were menopausal immediately or whether they had been menopausal for five, six, seven, 10 years. And so Whoa. they're just, you know, and at the time, I think we didn't maybe fully understand that, but now we know that you're talking about apples and oranges because it's two completely different stages of the menopausal journey. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why the pendulum you know, at first everyone was getting HRT, then post WHI, nobody was getting HRT. And I think now we're finally starting to see that pendulum swing back towards the middle. Okay. Yeah. A more balanced view of it. I think it's great that so many people are talking about it. Um, I did see something also on your Instagram, kind of you reacting to, um, you know, the use of progesterone cream as like a dangerous uh, because it's not FDA approved as a dangerous practice. Are there any yeah, other practices? Yeah, I think the takeaway from, from that is, you know, 
Number one, because I think there is a little bit of a misconception or or maybe you know mistaken um, perception that if something is natural or if it's um, non-pharmaceutical, then it has to be better because mm. it's more natural, it's organic, it's more closely linked to what is theoretically happening in our physiology. And that's just simply not the case. Um, so if you are going to be using, um, substances and I'll, and I'll kind of loop everything. So herbs, you know, seeds, supplements, um, anything that's creams, creams that is not FDA approved. Um, number one is you want to make sure, as I said, in the beginning, the person needs to have extensive experience. They need to fully understand what they're giving and why they're giving it. Um, and number two is they, you know, you really want to make sure it it matters where you get these done, right. Or where Mm -hmm. you're getting these creams or herbs or seeds from, um, because they're not all made the same. They're part of the, you know, the FDAs, you can love them or hate them, but part of being on the pharmaceuticals being FDA regulated is that all batches have to have the same dose, the same efficacy, the same half-life, the same elimination period, et cetera. And that's just not true for non-FDA regulated substances. So the reason that I say, you know, progesterone is a very, very useful hormone. I, as a fertility specialist, actually love progesterone and I give boatloads of progesterone to my patients in different forms all the time, Mm -hmm. but the cream is not one of them. And if you're going to use progesterone and you want to make sure you're using it in this only in the second half of the cycle or in early pregnancy. So you really want to make sure that you're using it uh, with someone who knows what they're doing and how to do it. I okay. guess is the short, short and skinny. Yeah. 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 No, that that's exactly what, what I was yeah trying to, to get at is how, what would you recommend, you know, for people to look out for actually in terms of like, because I do think more people than ever are trying to take, especially women and people that bleed are trying to take their health into their own hands, which mm-hmm. can be a good thing. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also more than ever. I mean, like I said, I talk, all day long to all kinds of specialists and women health, women's health and like practitioners and non-traditional practitioners. And um, so it's, it's good to hear this perspective as well and to get some guidance as well for, you know, like what to look out for or what can be, you know, useful advice with that when you are taking your health into your own hands. And I think, and I'll take that a step further and say, you know, I want, I would want as a physician, I would want the patient to trust me with their care. And if the patient is interested in integrative practices, and again, I use that term sort of all encompassing, um, I want to be open to that. And I want to, to be able to explore and navigate that with them. Um, So I do want to make sure that as sort of Western trained physicians, we are also open to these other practices, but but I just, I want to be very clear that like natural, organic, um, non-pharmaceutical, it's not always better, right? right. So there's yeah. this concept of integrating or, or marrying. And if you're going to do it, you know, you want to make sure you're working at least if with a physician who is open to exploring those things with you. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that that is one of the amazing things about you <laughs> is that you are out here talking to people and putting yourself out there and saying, hey, okay, this is happening. <laughs> we're, we're aware in the medical world that this is happening in traditional, you know, Western med medicine and, and we want to help. Right. So right. my question is, is there any kind of like um, official network or somewhere that people can go. I mean, you're, you're there in California, but let's say you've got a woman in a completely different part of the country that wants to work with an OBGYN that is going to be open and going to, you know, take the time to, to discuss sure. these things and, and, and be able to work with them in this way. Where can we go for that? So the short answer is no, there's no, there's no like official um, network or listserv or anything like that. But I, but I will say that, and I, and there was a great live um, with Dr. Dazur on my Instagram on bias. And we talked a lot about the physician patient relationship. Okay. And, you know, in my world, obviously that relates specifically to fertility, hormones, et cetera, but it can be applied to any physician patient relationship. And I think that even if it's somebody you're seeing once a year, you want to feel comfortable. You want to be able to know that you're going to call that office. You're going to be heard. Your questions are going to be answered. Um, and so part of the conversation when you are having that annual visit or that initial, you know, visit is, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going through a menopausal transition, or I think I'm having hot flushes or I, you know, whatnot. And I would love to work with, you know, someone who's an herbalist. I actually, there's a great, mm. she's, she's amazing. Um, and I can provide her information to your audience after later, but anyway, and she, you know, who has more than 10 years of experience. She trained in China and, you know, in, in that country, they actually do a lot of integrative practices with their medicine. Um, and I would love to explore that with you. How do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. And just have yeah. that conversation, just be very open with your physician because there was actually a study done in the infertility population. The study is 10 years old now, but it said, you know, almost 80% of couples were doing some sort of um, uh, they call it, what do they call it? Complementary alternative medicine. So CAM mm -hmm. was the acronym, but basically an integrative practice essentially is what we, they were talking about. 80% of couples had added some sort of integrative practice to their fertility journey, but less than 25% reported it to their physician. And so, you know, for me, if we're going to have a genuine and trusting relationship, like I need to know what you're doing. And if you're yeah. doing herbs or taking any supplements, even more more so because what if there's interaction with what I'm giving you or whatnot? So you want to be able to have that open discussion. Yeah. Yeah. That that's um, absolutely. And best case scenario, I think, right. To have, I mean, you yeah. would be best case scenario for someone to, to land with <laughs> well, you seriously, yeah. but I know yeah. that there's other, you know, like, I don't know if you um, follow or have seen uh, Dr. Marie Claver on on Instagram. No, she's the, oh, she did the Galveston diet and she's board certified okay. yes. OBGYN. Yes. She's yes. making real waves also. And mm -hmm. all the time she's got a huge following and she's like all the time she kinds of, she will post their, their comments and DMS of like, I went to my OBGYN and asked them this. And they told me that it's completely normal to be suffering, you know, and like, she's got really strong opinions about that. Um, and so her thing, she's trying to pull together a big list of like OBGYNs across the nation that people can have access yeah. to. 
that are like recommended and yeah and I think the the hope is that the tides are changing, right? So, right. so in her world, you know, maybe she's talking about the menopausal transition. Yeah. In my world, a very common complaint is painful intercourse or painful periods that are progressively worsening over time. Um, the underlying disease there is something called endometriosis, which is um, treatable to different degrees in patients, but there's lots of different medications. And ACOG, again, coming back to the American College of OBGYNs, had put out a guideline a few years ago that the average patient with endometriosis had seen five OBGYNs before they actually reached a diagnosis. And so there was this societal sort of acceptance that, well, periods are just painful and just kind of deal with it. Um, And what we now, a lot of us recognize is that no, periods should not be pain. Yes, they're not comfortable, of course. No one likes to get, you know, (laughs) it's fine, but they really shouldn't be painful. If a patient is doubled over, she's missing work, she can't be intimate with her partner, et cetera. Like those are all not normal scenarios that merit further exploration. And so I definitely see in that area, I definitely see the tide changing. My hope is that in the menopausal transition world, that is also changing. And I am lucky enough to know, you know, some colleagues that are doing some phenomenal work in that arena. Um, And the hope is that that will sort of keep going and get stronger in terms of the movement and the shift in that regard. I love that. Thank you. And I love that kind of, you know, analysis that you just drew between the painful periods and that being normalized. I think that's the one thing that like, not the one thing, but one of the things that um, a lot of people are beginning to agree on that. Like if you are doubled over in pain or throwing up or on your bathroom floor, no, that is not normal. Actually. Um, I think there's still a lot of debate on, okay, how we deal with that situation. Right. But the yeah. fact that it it's not just like, oh, come on, it's your period, get over it. You know, you just, it hurts, whatever, right? Um, and then drawing that line between that and yeah, the the what we're going through in menopause, what, you know, the, the brain fog, the hot flashes that, you yeah. know, because that in a sense has been the same thing. Well, it's menopause, you know, that, what right. do you think? It's normal, get over it. <laughs> right, or, right, or, right. And we're recognizing now that like, no, there's actually great treatment for that. And there's great options so that women, again, I come back to, they don't just have to survive through that, but they can actually thrive through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Sweldo. I will put in the show notes, a link to where uh, the listeners can reach out to you on your Instagram. And I don't know if you have a website. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have a YouTube channel with weekly 10 minute little clips, so we can, we can give them that as well. Nice. I think that that, yeah, that could be very useful. Thank you so much for your time here today. Carrie, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. This is Carrie, and I just wanted to drop in quickly to remind you to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and head on over to www.28ish.com to sign up for our newsletter. And remember, your cycle is more than your period. Bye!